I'm curious, who here loves fiction? Anybody love fiction? Uh, who just loves story? It could be true, it could be not true, you just love good stories. And it doesn't matter if you are a reader of those things or you just like to watch it on TV. I'm, I, I, I read a lot, but I, I can't read fiction, I can't read stories, I gotta read more nerdy books. But whether it's like you're binge watching Netflix or you just can't put down a book, I'm curious how many of you, you're kinda like this, when you get to the final chapter or you get to the final episode of a story you've been watching, you feel sad, anyway? How many, just like delay watching it or delay reading it, you slow it down because you don't want it to be over. How many of us in here know what it's like when you finished a good story, you finished a good book, you miss the characters like they were your friends? Okay, there's nothing wrong with you, right? That's not like a weird thing about you. There are few things in life that capture our minds, capture our hearts, capture our souls like, like story does. I think it's probably one of the reasons that somebody like Taylor Swift is basically a billionaire with an army of loyal Swifties. She has combined two very powerful things, music and storytelling. And I'll leave it up to academics to explain to us why story is so powerful. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised by that at all because God designed us for, he hardwired us for story. It probably the best way to think about his word, to think about the Bible, is that it is a grand, unified, true story. It's better to think of it that way than like a textbook full of facts and propositional truth statements. Although it does have facts and propositional truth statements, it's more God has chosen to communicate to us and to reveal himself to us more through true story than any other way. And every time we gather together, Every time we get together and, and I'm up here and, I, and I'm preaching, my goal is twofold. One is I want to help us better understand this grand unified true story and to behold the truth, goodness, and beauty of the author. And I have a way, I have a method that I use uh, for doing that. Um, I might have mentioned it before, but I figured that it might be helpful just to kind of say out loud to let you guys know what I'm doing up here. Uh, this method that I use, this, uh, this kind of framework that I use, I think it has the ability to help every single person really better capture and understand and unlock the deep richness of the gospel. What I'm talking about is gospel fluency. I want us to think in the gospel, to speak in the gospel, to dream in the gospel. You know, if you've ever learned a new language, when you dream in that language, you know you're really getting that language. And to be gospel fluent, we're talking about know the content of the gospel, understand the implications of the gospel, and apply the motivations of the gospel. The content of the gospel is everything that's true about who God is and the story of how he is engaging in this world, all that he's done. And we're primarily looking at Jesus we're looking at who Jesus is and all that he's done so that we can be saved. And you might have heard me say this before, that we are all far more guilty and sinful and morally messed up than we could ever dare admit. But in Christ, we're far more loved and accepted and forgiven and delighted in than we could ever dare hope. And this brand new life that we receive and salvation that we receive, it's 100% about what Jesus has done and 0% about what we do. We simply receive it by faith. That is the content of the gospel. We got to know the content of the gospel, who he is and what he's done. But we also need to understand the implications of the gospel. The gospel impacts every area of life. 
It saturates all of life. It's not just how we get into heaven. It's how we live this abundant life now. And so the gospel, when we understand the implications, it, it impacts how we think, how we feel, the things that we would choose to do and not to do. It impacts every kind of relationship. We have to understand the implications of the gospel. But we also need to know the motivations, to apply the motivations of the gospel. Throughout this series, we said we overcome by what Jesus has done, not what we do. We are saved, we are forgiven, we're made new 100% by what Jesus did, not what we do. It's all about what he's done. So why would we do anything? Why repent? Why obey? Why try to apply what we read and discover in his word? Why pursue wisdom? Well, we're motivated by his love for us and our love for him and the deep gratitude that we have and, and the tremendous joy that's available for us walking in his way. So we need to know the content of the gospel, understand the implications of the gospel, and apply motivations of the gospel. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to grab a Bible. You can grab an analog one uh, like I have, or you could pull out uh, your phone and use it that way. If you have it memorized, you can go from memory, and congratulations on being so smart. But this is, the this is the chapter, these are the verses that we want to look at, Revelation chapter 2. And um, as we're going to read through this together, I want you to think about content of the gospel, implications of the gospel, motivations of the gospel. We are in this series, week four of a series called Dear Church. We're calling it Dear Church because Revelations excuse me, Revelation chapters 2 and 3 contain seven different letters from Jesus to seven distinct churches. This is his personal message to them. And we just believe that when we better understand what Jesus had to say to another church, we'd better understand what he wants to say to our church. And when we look at his messages to these seven different churches, we really know his heart and his mind for his church. And so we're going to read this together, beginning in verse 18. To the angel in the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Not only are you a great church, you're getting greater. What an awesome church. Nevertheless, uh-oh. <laughs> You've been around, you know what that means. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds." Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious, does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Just like last week, the letter that we're reading this week has quite a bit of symbolism and references, and we might feel like the references are coded references and not that, kind of, not that clear. So I've got several things here that we're going to need to um, unlock we're going to need to interpret them so that we can really understand and not just understand this letter, but to be able to take the message to heart. So we're going to try and do that quickly together. You guys ready? Had enough coffee? You're ready to go? Here's the first one. Eyes like blazing fire. Now, this is a reference to Jesus' omniscience and his flawless judgment. Jesus sees and knows all. He's never misguided. He's never under the wrong impression. His insight into us, even our motivations in our heart, his insight into us and his response to us is always flawless. And I think this is good news. I, I want to ask you if you can remember week one when we started walking through these letters, we read, even before we read the first letter, that Jesus is walking among the lampstands. What does the lampstand represent? It's a church, yes. And so Jesus is walking among his churches. He is with us. My mind jumps back to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 28. Jesus has been resurrected from the dead for some time now. He's about to ascend back into heaven. And this is a paraphrase. He says to his followers, go everywhere, teach people about me, lead them to be fully devoted followers. And no matter what, no matter what happens, no matter where you go, I am with you. Jesus is walking among us. He is with us. He is for us. That is deeply and profoundly encouraging and encouraging to that church, and it should be encouraging to us too. It says, feet like burnished bronze. That's a reference to he's mighty and he's unshakable. And this would have been instantly understood by people in this city, part of their industry, part of their export. Uh, the way that they made money and buoyed their economy was producing this kind of metal. And the primary use for it was, had military application for armor. And so it just, it, it, it resonates, especially with it being Jesus's feet. Well, he's mighty, he's strong, he is unshakable. Next, there's a reference to someone named Jezebel. This is a real historical figure that you could read about in 1 Kings. She was the queen of Israel, the wife of King Ahab, the arch nemesis of a prophet of God named Elijah. And she is a, a symbol of defiant evil. I'm curious, if, any, if you've lived in the South or if you're old enough, you might know this reference. How many of you have ever heard a woman called a Jezebel as an insult? Anybody ever heard that? Me too. That's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that it's become a colloquialism to, to label or shame a particular kind of woman because it misses by a mile. This woman in 1 Kings, she personally funded hundreds of prophets of Baal who led the people of Israel to engage in all kinds of despicable things. She personally funded the systematic execution of prophets of God. And so Jezebel has become a biblical reference, a word to describe anyone, man or woman, who would use their status, influence, power, position to actively oppose the purposes of God and the people of God. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but this is a passage that sometimes gets confused and, and maybe some of us have heard it taught differently and I just want to bring some clarity to it. The problem was not that she was a woman. It's not about her gender. 
If you were here last week, we, we read the letter to the church at Pergamum. There was some false teaching going on, and that false teacher was, relate, was identified with an Old Testament figure named, do you guys remember his name? Balaam. That's right. Was the problem that he was a dude, or was the problem his anti-gospel teaching and behavior? It was the problem was anti-gospel teaching and behavior. The problem, it's not about gender. It's about anti-gospel teaching and behavior. Believe it or not, it's always been a part of God's story to use women at some of the highest levels of leadership and spiritual authority. This is just some, not all, of the women in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that God has purposely used as leaders. Focusing on the content of the gospel, um, God once spoke through the prophet Micah reminding the people of Israel of all that he had done for them as a motivation for why they should stay faithful to him. And this is what God said through the prophet Micah. I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and also Aaron and Miriam. To do what? To lead. Bad news, ladies. God wants you to be leaders too. All right, let's keep going. Bed of suffering. Who wants to take a nap there? Natural and supernatural consequences. There are times that God intentionally allows natural consequences for our choices to hurt us, to motivate us to repentance. And there are times that God supernaturally intervenes, purposely, intentionally causes pain in our lives to motivate his people who he loves to repent. Repent from what? It was described as adultery. And that reference is really about turning to anti-gospel teaching and behavior. Was there, was there sexual sin in this church? Yeah, you better believe there was. But this is a term that was used to connect people with the ugliness of sin and faithlessness in the same way that adultery will bring harm to a marriage. Willfully, in an unrepentant way, participating and anti-gospel teaching and behavior brings harm to a church and to our relationship with Jesus. There's a very intense statement that's made, strike her children dead. This is not about actually harming children. This is about ending the spread and influence of this particular false teaching and false teacher. God is not going to allow it to continue. So what was it? The reference was Satan's deep secrets. I think that this is, a lot of biblical commentators will say this as well, a reference to Gnosticism, which was a false teaching that was common in the first and second century, trying to make its way uh, into churches. There have always been from the jump false teachers who want to get influence in the church. That continues now. What is the number one antidote to lies? Truth. This is why knowing the content of the gospel is so incredibly important. And then for those who endure, there's authority over nations, an iron scepter and broken pottery. What is that about? Well, this is a reference back to Psalm chapter 2, but also communicating that believers are going to reign with Jesus. If you read Psalm chapter 2, if you read many other passages in the Old Testament, if you jump ahead to the end of Revelation chapter 21 and 22, all believers will reign forever with Jesus in heaven and the new earth. 
And what this is trying to communicate is that there's a time that we followers of Jesus are going to reign forever with Jesus in this world as it's always intended to be. And an iron scepter and broken pottery, while that might sound harsh, what it's communicating is that all the systems and ways of being that oppose God and his truth, goodness, and beauty will be undone and we will reign in new life and joy and peace. It's beautiful imagery. Morning star. Believers will share in Jesus' glory. In Philippians chapter 2, you could read something the Apostle Paul wrote. He doesn't use this language, but he's trying to communicate the content of the gospel, apply the implication, understand the implications of the gospel, apply the motivations of the gospel. In Philippians chapter 2, he's writing to a church, and he says that as we are like Christ, he says we will shine like stars in the night sky because we reflect what Jesus is like. That's what it means to share in his glory. That's the kind of thing that's being communicated here. So we want to do what we did last week. I'm going to put this whole passage on the screen. I'm going to take out the symbolism. I'm going to take out the references, and I'm going to replace it with what those things are intending to communicate. So let's read that now. To the angel in the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God who knows all and has flawless judgment. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. You are growing in so many good things. Nevertheless, we need to talk. We need to have a very hard conversation. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman who pretends to be a prophet, but is obviously not because her teaching and behavior are blatantly anti-gospel. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I will cause her to suffer, and I will make those who turn to her anti-gospel teaching and behavior suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. We owe it to ourselves to note that they've been given time. They've been given lots of time to repent, but they're just stubborn and they won't. No one is more patient than Jesus, but when it comes to just tolerating anti-gospel behavior and teaching in the church, Jesus puts an expiration date on his patience. I will end this and not allow her teaching or influence to continue. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will pay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not followed the false teaching of Gnosticism. I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. I don't have a long list. I'm not putting burdens on you. It's just stay in the gospel. Hold on to the gospel. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will cause them to reign with me in heaven and the new earth forever. I will cause them to share in my glory. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Out of the four churches that we've read about thus far in these letters, this one is pretty fantastic. If your job or the events of life cause you to move to another city, find a church that is like this one in the city of Thyatira. This is a fantastic church. They have a big, soft heart for Jesus and a big, soft heart for people. They're people of faith, they know the gospel. There are people of generosity and service. We want to be a church like this. That's why we do things like ARC 18 and Ridgefest and go on mission trips and have, and have outreach partners in this city and around the world. Because we want to be a gift to people. 
They have perseverance. And the fact that this was highlighted, it implies that, even though we don't know the details of the story, it implies that they're maintaining their love and service and faith. It came with a cost. This is a great church. But like we've seen with the previous churches, there's an unexpected message. There's something that they didn't see coming, that maybe we didn't see coming, that Jesus has to say. It's a, it's a good conversation, but it's a hard conversation. In week one, the unexpected message, it's better to have no church than an unloving church. In week two, we learned that sometimes it's just better to let a church endure suffering than to prevent it. Last week, we learned that it's possible for a church to stand up for Jesus while standing against Jesus. And the unexpected message this week is this one. It's possible for a church to wrongly value staying together over staying faithful. Now, this church was wonderful in so many ways and was getting better in so many ways. But for some reason, they just said, let's just all keep it together. And they tolerated and they accommodated anti-gospel teaching, anti-gospel behavior to the point that Jesus had to say, enough, knock it off. If you don't, I'm going to crank up the pain and I'm going to keep cranking up the pain until you repent. I can't let this continue. If you were here last week, you might remember we said we don't tolerate sin because the consequences of sin are intolerable. I'm going to say the exact same way, but in a different way, because maybe this helps. We don't tolerate anti-gospel teaching and anti-gospel behavior because the consequences of those things are so intolerable. Now, this is not a license or an excuse to be judgmental or to judge, right? It's not that. It is never, ever that. Our mandate is discernment. And the problem is, the challenge is, is that judgment or judgmentalism looks the same thing, at, looks like the same thing as discernment on the outside, but what's going on under the hood is very different. Jesus gets to judge. He's the judge. We're not the judge. He's the judge. We don't engage in judgmentalism. We practice discernment. The problem is they look like the same thing to us. See, a judging person and a discerning person will both say, that's wrong. Can't stand with that. Can't participate in that. But when a judgmental person does it, it's motivated by, I think I'm better than you. I'm afraid of you. I don't like you. And I don't love you. But a discerning person says, that's wrong. But he does so, or she does so, because of love for the people involved, love for all others, and ultimately love for Jesus. And because I know we want to be discerning people and we don't want to be judgmental people, I've got a little resource, a little tool to help us out. Can I share it with you? Here's a, just a responsive discernment that we can hold on to. Because of our love for Jesus and each other, we don't participate in that here. You see, discerning people have discovered... Discerning people have discovered you get what you tolerate. So why would we tolerate anything that is a cancer to love for Jesus and each other? And so we could say this, because of our love for Jesus and each other, we don't participate in that here. This is where I'm going to ask you to be weird with me. I want you to turn to someone next to you, even if they're a stranger, if they're really good looking and you're single, go ahead and really lean in. But just say this, right? Because of our love for Jesus and each other, we don't participate in that here. Go. All right. Now, am I asking us to walk around and say this like robots to each other? No, that'd make us weirdos. Like, you can use your wisdom. You can speak from your heart. You can say it in your own way. But because of our love for Jesus and our love for each other, we don't participate in that here. Now, it's not our job to be the sin police. 
We're not the church police. We're not the evangelical police. Like Jesus has not called us. He's not given us the responsibility to go out and be on the hunt looking for everybody who might be wrong. That's not our job. But in our church family, when we find ourselves bumping up against, in our church family, when we find ourselves bumping up against anti-gospel teaching, anti-gospel behavior, this is what we would say. Hey, because of our love for Jesus and each other, we don't participate. We don't participate in that here. You know, I asked you about stories earlier. I like movie night. Who likes movie night? You guys like movie night? Sometimes I don't, if I'm going to go to a movie, I'm going to download a movie or stream it and watch it in my house. Um, I don't always know what's in the movie, right? And you know, and I'm a parent and there's content I don't want in my home. Even for myself, there's content I don't want to bring in my home. Can you guys relate to that? Well, I don't have time to know what's in every movie out there. So what do you do? Well, there's a website that I use called Plugged In Online, and if I don't know what's in a movie, I can read a review, find out kind of what's in it, and if there's content in it that I don't want to bring in my home, well, we just don't watch that movie. And I don't do it because I'm like mad at my kids or angry. No, 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 it's an expression of love. Because I, because I love my family, there's things that I won't welcome in my home. That makes sense, right? We're a church family. And because we love each other, there are things we won't welcome in our home. Because we love Jesus, because we love each other, there are things that we don't welcome in here. So why did this church tolerate anti-gospel teaching and behavior? How could a church who is so right in so many ways be so wrong in such a big way? I don't know. I don't know the answer. I got some maybes. Can I share with you my maybes? Maybe they didn't feel like they had the energy to deal with another crisis, controversy, or change. Maybe they didn't respond when it was a small problem, and now it's grown to the point it's a big problem, and they feel overwhelmed by it. Maybe Jezebel, whoever she was, she had clout, power, and privileges that benefited the church, and they didn't want to risk losing that. Maybe Jezebel and her followers were big givers, Maybe they rationalized away her teaching and behavior with, well, you, she means well. Maybe she started out well. And because of the history of friendship and loyalty that they had to her, they gave her a pass. And like, she's one of us, though. Maybe they were concerned that people would leave the church if they addressed this matter. Maybe it was nothing more than conflict avoidance. The path to compromise was not a giant leap. It's never a giant leap. The path to compromise are always a long series of small steps. And this church had plenty of time and they had ample opportunity to say to themselves and each other, you know, because we, we love Jesus, we love each other, we don't participate in that here. But they didn't. And for whatever reason, they said, let's just keep it all together. Let's just stay together and keep going. And that usurped staying faithful to Jesus. And the question is, are we vulnerable to tolerating anything that's anti-gospel? Well, the answer to that question is, well, of course we are. <laughs> well, we're no better than that church. Our church is vulnerable. Every church is just as vulnerable to it as this particular church was. So what kind of anti-gospel thing might we be vulnerable to? And 
I'm just going to, I'm just kind of think big picture, think about churches and across our country. I think we're just vulnerable. We got to be on guard against mixing the gospel with a politician, political party, and or the pursuit of political power. I don't know if anybody's watched the news, but sometimes that happens in churches. And this is not me saying don't be engaged in politics. If you've been around, you heard me say be, pursue everything from the office of president to dog catcher. Get involved. Be involved. But we never want to mix the content of the gospel with this. Mixing the gospel with ego, celebrity culture, and machismo. It just kind of seems like that wants to make its way into churches. And we should say, no, we're not going to be vulnerable to that. We don't participate in that here. It's another thing we might be vulnerable to. Mixing the gospel with being spineless. In week one, the church we read about, they were heartless. The church we looked at last week, the church we looked at this week, it might just be fair to describe them as being spineless. And both would be really tragic errors for any church. Both are bad. They're not equally bad, though. It's interesting to note. It's interesting to note. Week one, church at Ephesus, they had perfect theology. They had right behavior, but they had lost their first love. They had lost love for Jesus and each other. And that is the only church. That is the only church that Jesus threatened to disband. That should hit us like a thunderclap. you got to hear this. To churches that allow false teaching and sexual immorality in their church. Jesus said, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to crank up the heat until you repent. Jesus was very, very serious. But he didn't threaten to disband churches with false teaching and sexual immorality. It was only to the church that had perfect theology and really good behavior that had lost their love for him and each other that Jesus said, I'm I'm going to disband this church. That's how egregious lovelessness is. And may we be a church that doesn't Let me say it this way. May we not be a heartless church. May we not be a spineless church. May we be a church with a soft heart and a strong spine. What would it look like for a church to be spineless? Again, we're going to look big picture and then we're going to come really personal. Creating scandals by failing to practice accountability and or covering up wrongdoing instead of acknowledging it and dealing with it appropriately. We know. I mean, we see churches, we see denominations, we see network of churches who are trying to pick up the pieces of scandal because people within their ranks did bad things. And instead of dealing it with it in the light because we're people of the light, they covered it up, and the cover-up is always worse than the crime, and that has caused many to lose trust in church. There's never, whether we're talking about abusing people, abusing money, abusing power, sexual scandal, there's never, ever, 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 ever an excuse to hide it and cover it up. You know, I, you guys got to know there's something I'm incredibly proud of you for in a way that you're helping people build trust in this community with church. Did you know that? We've got an army of volunteers who are getting ready to uh, make Ridgefest happen. And so many of our volunteers are saying, I'll take a background check. Number one, I'm just not afraid, but I'll take a background check because I'll do whatever it takes to be trustworthy and to earn trust with people and the community who are coming with their precious little ones. Isn't that a cool thing? Isn't that an awesome thing? I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of this congregation for that. 
An example of being a spineless church, posturing and speaking out about the sins of other groups while failing to face, honestly grieve, and repent from our own sins. It takes no guts. It takes no courage to get together in a church and talk about other people's sins. People expect that. No one's surprised by that. It doesn't take any guts. But when you have a spine that has been grown by the gospel, when you know how secure you are in the love of Christ and our love with each other, we can name it, we can say it out loud, this is how we sinned, this is how we messed up. We can honestly grieve it. And we can repent from it and walk in forgiveness on the other side of it. When you have a spine that's been grown by the gospel and you have a big heart and a soft heart for Jesus and other people, you can do that. Last example is really, I'm kind of saying the same thing in a different way. Being unwilling to say, because of our love for Jesus and each other, we don't participate in that here. See, a church with a spine can say that. A church without a spine can't. And like I said, I'm not asking for us to go around and everybody say this verbatim to each other. That'd make us weirdos. Speak from your heart. Speak from who you are, your personality, your way with, with your wisdom. But if you were to bump up against in your friend group or in your small group, if you were to bump up against things that are anti-gospel and teaching or behavior, it would be appropriate in your way to say, hey, because, remember, because of our love for Jesus and each other, we don't participate in that here. On your ministry teams, for you to say, hey, because of our love for Jesus and each other, we don't participate in that here. If you were to ever experience it from a pastor or from me, you have permission to say to me, you could use my words against me, hey, Rick, because of our love for Jesus and each other, we don't participate in that here. If you ever experienced it with or from any of our elders, they would give you permission to say this to them, because of our love for Jesus and each other, we don't participate in that here. So imagine that you're in a, you're in a scenario and, and somebody is just, they're speaking just with cutting words about someone else or to someone else. What you could do is you could say to that person, hey, it sounds like you're hurting. That means a lot to me and I want to know more about that. But I just want to remind you, we love Jesus and we love each other. That's not our way. We have a different way that we participate in. And we could come up with a thousand different examples. But for discerning people, there's always one kind of response. Because of our love for Jesus and each other, we don't participate in that here. There's this line that shows up in every letter from Jesus. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so our thesis, our drumbeat, which is based on this, is knowing the truth doesn't change anything. Submitting to the truth changes everything. Submitting to the truth begins with trusting in Jesus by faith. We don't save ourselves. We don't become good enough. We can't religiously perform our way in. We can't morally perform our way in. We can't be good enough to get acceptance, love, forgiveness. We can't do any of that. It's 100% what he does for us, 0% of what we do. We receive that by faith. It's the content of the gospel. An implication of the gospel is because we know that, because he is our authority and we have a new identity in him. The activity of our lives should reflect that and, and it affects everything that we do. And we are motivated by the love and joy and gratitude that we have. And so may we be people who run after Jesus, who walk with Jesus, 
May we be people who are so like Jesus that we shine like stars in the heavens as we reflect him to each other and to the community around us. You pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you for preserving your word so that we can better know you, better know Jesus. Yeah, we thank you that you see us. You see our hearts. When we get it wrong and we were trying to get it right, you know that. When we got it right, but we were really (laughs) motivated by something selfish, you know that too. And yet nothing stops you from leaning towards us. Even in times that you allow us to feel hurt or you cause it, there are times that you do that simply because you're trying to draw us to yourself. You're trying to motivate us to repentance. And God, who are we that you are so interested in us, that you are so in love with us? God, may that melt our hearts. May our hearts be soft to you. May our hearts be soft to each other. May our spines be strong. And may we walk in the way of Christ, shining in such a way that others see him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.